what? You're just like. I know it's like it useless. Didn't move it at all. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> uh, uh, I'll do that when I'm driving sometimes with, let's just say, the volume. Just, I'll, I'll turn it down like a couple notches and then just turn it up a couple notches <laughs> and then think, why did I do that? I it literally just it just wanted to adjust. Yeah. I needed to feel like a captain in control of gotcha. something. Okay. That's what this is. When I take my when I grab the pop filter by the mic and I just move it side to side, I feel like I'm just doing fine tuning of the sound. Yeah, you, you, you didn't move it at all though. <laughs> well, see, people listening, they'll notice they'll before. Notice. They're like, oh no, I can barely hear them. Then that little. And it's crystal clear. It sounds like a professional recording studio. Gotcha. Which it is, because as we discussed an episode or two ago, we are in basically a professional recording studio. We are in Abbey Road, where the Beatles recorded... No, no, no. I don't know about Abbey Road, but close. We're in Shabby Road. Welcome to Just Jiu-Jitsu, episode 82. I'm Croiler Gracie, here with Andrew Desimone. Thanks, Croiler, for intro for the introduction. That was, that was a good one. Wow, that was me? Yeah, that was you. That was good. Oh, you, wow. Usually I do it, but you said... I must have blacked out there. You said, no, Andrew, let me do this. Yeah, and your eyes flickered a little bit, and I just saw the whites of your eyes, and then that came That's out. That's what came out. I'm embarrassed. That was special. Well... We are here, episode 82, and we're coming off a fun weekend. We had, we talked last time about Joey, a friend of the podcast, came up and trained with us. Got to hang out a little bit and very nice guys. So, shout out to Joey from Florida. I wasn't sure if there were any sane people in Florida, but he showed us that there's at least one who, eh, I guess he's sane for the most part, right? Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I think so. And even more, uh, one thing that's kind of exciting is he's a big D&D guy. He is a big D&D guy. And we got to talk about that a little bit. He made bit. it almost exciting. He explained to us the, his setup for playing Dungeons & Dragons, and he we talked about how we dabble with some role playing on the show and I talked about how fun it would be to get Croiler and some of our other friends to play and I think Joey made a pretty solid pitch. He did. And and I'll I'll tell you what, I mean that setup alone like I just want to be part of that. So, yeah, what's his setup that he showed us? I mean, he's got the he's got a essentially a custom made it's like a TV. It's like a flat screen TV that you put. But it's down. a table, yeah. But it's a table. You turn into a table, and that's the, his board. That's his board, and he can make it have whatever. You can manipulate it. Yeah. So he's he's the dungeon master, and that's his world, and he is he is God. Yeah. I'm surprised that you don't. If you started playing, I think after after too long, you would go. I won't. I want to be the I want to be the dungeon master. I want to be God, and you because you'd have this just thirst for power, and then you would start to turn into. But can a dungeon master ever win? No, but a dungeon master is above winning because why win? When you win, you you obtain something. The dungeon master or God already has everything, so there's nothing to obtain other than to watch his minions. Just, just frivolously battle 
gotcha. with little human things. Hmm. Enticing sounds good, right? That sounds enticing. Yes, that's that's why you have a gym. <laughs> Is that why? That's I think the so. only, that's the only reason. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this episode is a continuation of our last one. So last time we did Fads and Trends, part one. This is part two, and we're going to focus mostly on trends here. Now, just a quick recap. Last time we we focused a little more on the fads, and we talked about fads are these things that are short-lived. That was the main thing that separated them from trends. Short-lived, they come in with a bang. People think it's amazing. It's the best new technique whatever and then once it loses the only thing that made it special was that people hadn't seen it right and then it dies on the vine but then there are trends that last they have a long life and actually turn into other things and evolve and some fads can lead to trends yes but but not not every trend is due to a fad and not every fad can get there the other, the other caveat that I have for for a trend is like it warps how people train jiu-jitsu. It's like a perspective changer? Well, no, not so perspective. Just like we're now, especially like competitors, they're now preparing for a specific thing that's, that's going to, it's like the next hot thing to do. So an example was back in the 70s was open guard. The advent of open guard, when when Holes Gracie developed open guard, the idea of opening his guard. Before him, the only guard we had really was was close guard. The only true effective guard we had at the time was close guard, and he was the first guy to say, "I can be just as dangerous, or I can be just as effective with an open guard as I can with a close guard." And what do you think it was about people seeing that open guard that made them then adapt that and include it in their game? Well, he, he, <clears throat> he thought outside the box. So if, you, if we really think about it, um, you're, you're a shorter guy. If you get a guy who's much... much uh, hold on a second. You come to my home. <laughs> you insult me. I mean, I didn't... If you want to take it as an insult, you can. <laughs> okay. Well, you're a tall guy. No, see, that doesn't, it doesn't have the same thing. <laughs> um, but if you, get a, if you are grappling with somebody who's much larger than you close guard is not typically as effective as it would be if if you were a taller person you know if you could wrap your legs around your opponent you know um but the people's solutions at the time were well if you can't do close guard you better be on top like that that was the only the only strategy where with holes opening his guard and 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 using his legs in a completely different way one it it opened the avenue for a, a ton of people that didn't have that that choice before to be able to fight in the bottom, right? It also led to people, you know, creating or expanding on that idea of, okay, so if I'm in the bottom and I can use my legs, you know, in different ways like this, what can I do, you know, or how can I get to goals that I know? You know, so as an example, like if you're doing an armbar from close guard, all of a sudden, somebody shows you that you can open your, your your legs and do open guard. You might think, "How do I get to armbar from here?" So then, you just develops that way. So I think that was a fad because it was something new. Holes was ahead of his time, but it also warped how people train jiu-jitsu. And now people train in a way that is 
to account for open guard and 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 then there's a thousand sub styles of open guard and so on you think one of the variables that contributes to something becoming a trend is necessity it's holes brought open guard into the main showed a lot of people what open guard could do and then they said oh yeah that's 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 something i've been dealing with it now i've been i've been de- i've been needing something to deal with these people and that's how this became a trend as opposed to a lot of let's say if you have a fad donkey guard or something where there's not that big of a net need for it and so that's one of the reasons it, it dies out it could be i think it's also how how robust the system really is right so the we, we, we talked about open guard right the, the idea of this open guard where you come in you expose the weakest spot that you could in any grappling situation you're back in hopes of getting a surprise sudden explosive technique into a sweep or an e-bar or a leg lock of some kind and that may work for a little bit but really the only good thing about donkey guard was the entries to leg locks so it wasn't even the position itself that had value it was just where it took you right and once people figured out leg locks and they could defend leg locks very well which you're seeing you're seeing a better caliber of defensive technique uh, in regards to leg locks which means now donkey guard will take you to a place where people are defending very well so all of a sudden there isn't value there you know where um the idea of open guard there was a lot of value there's no there's no you know there's no loss of value at any point in open guard because it added people so more people could do it it led to innovation it led people to think outside the box. You know, he broke that mold where people felt that they always had to do what they were told, where now they could do, they could think more creatively and do different things. And and it led to people now having to change how they train. They couldn't just train for, you know, close guard. They had to train for somebody who was good at open guard. So holes, open guard, that's that we talked about something or about that happening in around the 70s. A trend to me also can define like an era or can put the boundaries on this is the open guard era. If you if you go back through jujitsu, are there could you look at could you walk through you you don't have to walk through every period, but as you think about it. Do you go, oh yeah, like the 50s we saw a lot of this, 60s we saw oh, a lot absolutely. of this. What, what kind of characteristics, what what kind of classifications and trends do you, do you put through? Because in the mainstream, well, in like the US, we think, oh, 60s you had hippies in Vietnam, the right. 70s you had this. In jiu-jitsu, what's going on during the, during these times as so, we progress? So I think, and... and the, uh, the, the length or the lifetime of a trend decreases over time, meaning because there's more people practicing, there's more people studying jiu-jitsu, and there's a higher number of competitions, the, essentially the trial and error phase, so to speak, is smaller. You know, where before, if you only have 10 tournaments a year, now you may have 300 tournaments a year, you can, you can achieve the same amount of testing in a much shorter amount of time. Yeah, your laboratory is much larger. Correct. So keep that in mind as we go through these. But the fir- the first big 
pattern to jujitsu was take down some sort of upper body judo style throw into a controlling position to submission. So take down, side mount, up mount, arm bar, etc. Very basic. That's a lot of very much like judo. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where it came from. And right? is that going to be around the twenties, thirties, forties? It lasts a while because yeah, there aren't as many I would, people. I would go as far as like the 40s mm. right and then that's interesting uh, though i never thought about the trends decreasing in their length right in their life yeah yeah but and and, and so do fads right fads mm. will shorten much faster too um so we then have the the development and and testing of close guard mostly through my family you see it in my grandfather you see it in his brothers you see it in his kids his you know my aunts and uncles everybody and close guard was very effective you saw it with carlson gracie you saw it with all these guys competitions are now picking up so now you're seeing more and more competitions as well so now the trend is taking a person down immediately and now we're no longer doing judo style throws or doing more wrestling style throws Um, they tend to be on more explosive, more aggressive, they don't take as much setup or as much practice to become good at. So, and where did you? What do you? Where do you see the origin for the the wrestling coming into play? Well, there was, and, and this was an influence from from Valitudo. Uh, we talked about how there's a huge rivalry between them, um, and 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 for the self defense purposes, you know, when you start looking at situations where you don't necessarily have a really great collar like in america like in the winter if you have a jacket like that's pretty much a gi you know what i mean Mm. when it's 110 degrees out and people are wearing board shorts like that's you don't you know you don't have much there now could you do judo judo throws yeah but when when you're fighting people constantly you tend to take things that are going to be more effective to you in that immediate time in brazil generally speaking after the judo era it transitioned into wrestling which also slided the judokas in Brazil, and there's a rivalry there too. So, but anyways, um, so you started seeing more wrestling-based takedowns, um, and then it became, you, you do a takedown, judo or wrestling, mostly wrestling, take the person down, control, submit. If you were taken down, the trend before used to be find a way to get to the top. And, you know, when the, the advent of the close guard Becoming a thing, change that to if you're on your back, just put them in your closed guard, submit them from there. And you saw this in my grandfather's fights, you saw it in my uncle's fights, and so on. You fast in this era probably lasted 25 years, 30 years. Did your grandpa ever talk talk to you or talk to uh, family members, and then you, you heard about his? like his actual developing of that closed guard and where like those early stages wasn't him just being a small guy who couldn't get to the top and so he said can right. i fight from down here absolutely that was a need for him you know my grandfather was a good was was actually really good at throws there's plenty of footage out, out there of him being able to throw people but my grandfather was also very physically frail um and and because of that his throwing ability was often you know stopped or hindered against bigger guys i mean at the end of the day size will play a a very big factor on throwing ability yes i understand that with technique you can conquer anything 
but you know it's much harder for a 100 pound person to throw a 250 pound person with let's say a double leg versus you know the 255 pound person take a 100 pound person down with a double leg so mm-hmm. um a lot of his fights would lead him to go to his back and he he saw himself often there and so he needed to develop a way to fight off his back in a defensive stand stance so that he could eventually launch an offense and that's where like the close guard kind of came from and to me that's really my grandfather's greatest achievement in jujitsu technically speaking was the development of, of close guard but anyways um so you had that period for around 30 years yeah between you know 35 40 to about 65 70 and between 60 and 65 70 that's when you start seeing the holes gracie era where he thinks outside the box he was the first guy to not bastardize wrestling takedowns or judo takedowns for that matter because before uh you know it was kind of like telephone you know the 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 early even in my family the early jiu practitioners they would see a double leg they would practice once or twice they would come back and they would teach it to their students and then their students would then go on and teach other students and so on and it kind of broke down there's never really intensive practice um where where holes was the first guy to really like dedicate time to practicing wrestling you know he joined the brazilian wrestling team he was part of the olympic national you know the olympic brazilian wrestling team yes was it as good as the american wrestling team no wasn't our sport but it was as the best train he could get at the time he was also, you know, trained in judo, like extensively in judo, so he could do throws, you know, and then he was incorporating those techniques and those training methodologies in jiu-jitsu and added and, and, and thought outside the box and added leg locks from sambo. He trained in sambo, competed in sambo even, you know, so he had the leg locks, he had the throws from judo, throws from wrestling, and then he, he saw no reason as to why he couldn't open his guard and fight with an open guard. And so he became one of the most dynamic jiu-jitsu fighters ever because he was just ahead of it. You know, he, he thought, like, ahead of everybody else. And then you have Hull's era, which was the open guard era. Mm-hmm. So then you get through that open guard era, which would be around... I mean, we still are really kind of in an st- open well, guard well, era. Well, it's not that we're in the open guard era. That's just jiu-jitsu now. It's just jiu-jitsu now. He yeah. warped. He, he broke the mold, you know. So a a, a tr- that probably the sign of a truly successful trend is that it ceases to be a a trend and becomes indistinguishable from Correct. the it, it warps, art itself. It warps the art, warps the format. You know, that's what you need to do now. What trends do you see then when you think of like the 80s, 90s? Late 70s, early 80s, up to even late 80s, you saw a lot of um, seeds that were planted that never took off until later you saw the introduction of leg locking um through more sambo influence through um you know just the 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 need like there was a we talked about the big um rivalry between my grandfather and Mm -hmm. and fada and so on with the leg locks and how there was a whole different you know sect so to speak of jiu-jitsu that was really focused on leg locks um that they were around for a minute at that point in time it was a fad and it disappeared um it came back now as a trend but we'll talk about that later um you saw the development of half guard 
Shaftguard became a thing mostly because uh, Gordo couldn't do Halfguard. Um, I don't know. Have we done an episode on Gordo? We have not. Yeah, Gordo's an interesting character. It'd be, be good to do on one. On what, what's play. a quick summary of Gordo? He was a he was a, a high level competitor. He's known as the father of Halfguard. Um, he he was a purple belt. Hurt his knee. Couldn't do close guard, which is what he was good at. Definitely couldn't do open guard because his knee was he had a bum knee. So, um, like every other jiu-jitsu practitioner, he couldn't stay off the mats, so he would grapple in the only way that he could. He figured half guard would hide his knee from attacks and damage, and he could still fight. So he was the first guy to develop half guard. Around what time was was he doing that? 80s, 90s? Mid-late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Um, So you have, you know, Dead Man of Half Guard, which became the next trend. I mean, really, like, you had Half Guard, De La Hiva... Um, and, and and the advent of Spider Guard all being developed roughly at the same time, late 80s, early 90s. Um, you had guys who took Spider Guard and, and made it incredible. You know, guys like Pano and, and Margarita and others. You saw guys like De La Hiva developing the De La Hiva Guard, which was a specialized open guard. You saw guys like um, Gordo doing, you know, um, half guard. So, at the time, people might have thought that they were fads, that they would go away because they weren't very specific. Uh, Their techniques didn't really take them anywhere crazy, crazy, but it turns out that they're trends, and they're long trends. I mean, they've been around for 30, 40 years, and now anybody that's competing in jiu-jitsu or anybody that trains jiu-jitsu, if you don't know what half guard is, you're not going to be good at it. If you have never heard of De La Hiva, you know, let's say you're new, you've never heard of De La Hiva, that's fine. That's a very specialized open guard. But if you're a blue or purple, you've never heard of De La Hiva, that's, there's probably a problem with that, you know. Same thing mm-hmm. with Spider Guard. Um, so then you move on into the 90s, um, and, and now there's two overarching trends that have happened in that can't be overlooked, right? So the first big trend was take down, pass, swim, sub, uh, control, and submit. And then it shifted when after Hole's era to sweep or submit, meaning you were working from the bottom, right? And once you get into the 90s, now you're having people that are now going back to the original trend of I must pass. I must get the takedown and a clean pass because if I don't get the takedown and the clean pass, I'm going to be stuck in somebody's guard and that's going to be a problem. You start to see like guys like a Ted today who are correct aggressive yeah. guard passers, correct explosive passing. You know the event of you know multi-directional passes and 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 passes that would not only control via grips but control via movement and angling um you see today marcelo garcia and others and um and then you get into like the late 90s you get butterfly guard which was huge koala guard or ocean and shen same thing um and you go into like 2005 so now these trends are lasting four or five years you know they're much smaller because there's more competitors more competition more footage you know, more access to all that stuff. Um, 2005, 2007, you started to see the the shift into like 
um, very early on, not very successful. Um, I remember actually com- being a competitor um, in the 2007, 2008, and referees not knowing how to score 50 <laughs> And like sometimes the same referee wouldn't score it the same way twice because there were no rules on it. There was no guidelines on it. Um, 50-50 was kind of, didn't last very long. It came back in the mid-2000s, mid-2010s because of uh, other issues that were happening. What brought 50-50 into like popularity? What what need, what what set that up? So I'm going to give credit to, to three people. And I don't know that it was intentional. But I think it it was definitely, there was at least some thought about it. So there were guys like in 2005 and 7 and 8, um, like um, Ryan Hall, who was doing 50-50, right? Um, very squirrely, awkward, unorthodox jiu-jitsu. He was getting a lot of, a lot of credit, you know, in the era and in California. Grappler's Quest, he was incredible. Um, so he's one. He's one guy I give credit to. But it, it never made it to the big stage. 50-50 just never made it to the, the highest level of competition. And mostly because it was so hard to get to, um, the, the entries weren't as well developed as they are today. And with the gi, a lot of grapplers' quests were no gi. Um, I think, in fact, the vast majority of them are no gi. Um, the key made it difficult, the extra gripping and the friction and so on. Um, so with with the the next two people that were the cause of 50-50 to happen were Cabrinha and Hafa Mendes. More Hafa Mendes than Cabrinha, but definitely Cabrinha as well. Cabrinha was unstoppable. I think from, I think seven, 2007, 2011, he was like the dude to beat, man. He was incredible. He was just like, he was like eras ahead of everyone in that weight class. And on top, he was a whirlwind. He'd pass your guard much like like in a Tere style, multi-directional. If he was in the bottom, he had like an incredible spider guard that you, you just couldn't, you couldn't get around it, you know. Uh, had great takedowns. He was the first, one of the first lightweights to have really, really, really great takedowns, good wrestling and judo takedowns. Um, he was just like, he was tough, you know, and then Hafa Mendes steps on the stage. And I remember studying their, their very first match, I think it was in 2010 or 2011. It was the first time essentially that somebody derailed uh, Cobrinha was Hafa Mendes. Mm-hmm. Um, Hafa Mendes, very, you know, at first I thought it was an accident. The first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this was just a fluke. You know, he got into 50 50 and it was 0 0 or 2 2 or 4 4. It was like a tied match and he won in 50-50 you know basically the referees weren't quite sure how to score and um, and I remember watching I'm like oh that was like like just a weird scramble it just mm-hmm. ended funny and then I watched it again and again and again and Hafa very deliberately put Cabrinha into 50-50 and now I think that was a strategy because in that tournament he didn't actually go into 50-50 with anybody else so you know, if you're practicing something day in and day out, you're gonna pull it off, especially mm-hmm. under under stress. And he he didn't not a single match in that tournament, except when he fought Cabrinha. I think it was in the finals even, <clears throat> and he put Cabrinha in fifty fifty, like quick, like 
two or three minutes in, boom, 50-50. And stalled him out. So he was, was he attacking much from there or was he just so, tying mean, him up? I mean, he was. He had a little bit more knowledge of 50-50 than Cabrinha did, but Cabrinha was also Cabrinha. And, and you know, why did that hold Cabrinha up? Just because he wasn't familiar with wasn't being familiar there? With it, okay. yeah. I mean, lots of experience and, and lots, lots and lots of experience and great training, but unfamiliar with the era, with, with the technique, the area that he was in. And, and while Hafa had a little bit more, more experience with that position, he didn't overall have more experience than Cabrinha. He hadn't been in those battles with high level guys. So, um, Basically, it stalled out there. There's a quick exchange at the end, and that's what caused costed Cabrian the loss. And it was a, it was a huge uproar because, you know, people were saying it was like a you know stalling. Yeah, okay. you know what I mean. Like it was poorly scored, but there was no rules against anything. Technically, both people are in guard. You can't stall them out, you know. And and that's that was the year that led to IBGF actually developing rules for fifty fifty and how to score and and all that. Um, following year comes around and the same shit happens again you know half a puts Cabrera right back into 50 50 and that, that repeated i think through all their matches but were the rules different so they helped Correct. were they in uh cabrina's f- no mend Hoffa's favor at that no, point at, you know at that point i think the rules were if i put you in 50 50 and you, let's say you're on top so in the bottom i, I put 50 50 up and I knock you in your butt and I come up for three seconds, I score two. And then if you knock me right back, because we're in the same position, mm-hmm. and you come up for three seconds, you score two. So it was like an even tying like thing. And then that's it, because then you couldn't score anymore. Could Okay, so so if if you knocked me on my butt, and then I popped up again, right. and then you knocked me back on my butt. It's only 2-2, only two, two, and that's it. Okay. Yeah. So it was one of those things where, you know, that same basically that match repeated itself a lot between Cabrera and, and Hafa Mendes. Every time they matched, they always somehow ended up in fifty fifty. And I think that was a purposeful strategy to take a more experienced guy into areas that he's not as experienced in. Sure. You know. Um and that fifty fifty trend has now transitioned into two thousand and ten. So you see especially with the heavier weights, you see guys going into 50-50 to stop a heavyweight from moving. And then the heavyweight that can't fall, won't fall, because he doesn't want to get scored on, but can't doesn't really know how to pass or can't really pass, so they just kind of stick around. Sometimes they'll go for a toe hold or something like that, but mm-hmm. you see a lot of matches in IBGF now where people just stall out in 50-50. Yeah. You know? So that takes us to 2010, and then what era... Are we in now, or are we missing? Are there any trends between now and that period that we're skipping? I mean, we're you, had, skipping you had Lasso coming out roughly around the same time as, uh, like, 2007, 5 to 7. You saw a lot of Lasso coming out. Um, and then 2011, 12, you started seeing, like, the the warm guard come out um, with the lapel, basically lapel guard, warm guard being a subsection of a lapel guard coming out. Um, we saw the the transition back to leg locking came back um a lot of heavy influence and popularity due to both the dinner death squad and Tenth planet two big nogi camps a lot nogi competitions nogi competitions became huge in america um they became much more popularized so you started seeing more more leg locking due to the success of the dinner death squad earlier on 
and they were absolutely a, a, a ahead of the curve a little bit, right? But they were just capitalizing on the same thing that Fada capitalized in the 80s. Mm, yeah. Same thing. People weren't practicing. They just they weren't doing it. So you just got ahead of it. Now that you're seeing more people do great leg lock defenses, the, you don't see as many of the DDS's um, leg lock submissions. You see them threaten it and then transition to other places, but you don't see a lot of leg locking anymore from them. It's funny because history, looking back, it's it just seems these trends seem so obvious. A lot of especially the earlier phase, you think, well, of course that like okay, uh, Elio thought, well, I'm just gonna I, I get I'm caught on my back. I'm gonna learn to defend from this. You go, well, yeah, why wouldn't you? And then uh, you have someone who uh, I'm, I'm I'm struggling with, or I, I I'm working. Uh, with someone who's bigger, I'm gonna go open guard. And I'm like, yeah, of course you do that. Because when you look back, it's easy to follow those those right. breadcrumbs. Right. But when you're in the moment, these things are so much tougher to pick out. So I look at all that up to now and I, and everyone does this throughout the history. You go, I don't know where else it can go. I think maybe, maybe, maybe we, we, we figured it, it out. It's over, yeah. This, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but obviously that's not the case and so, L- sitting here looking ahead what if you had to predict some trends what would you what would some of Croyler's some of Croy Stradamus's predictions be um, for trends oh man I have a few um, I think much like leg locks you're going to start seeing wrist locks come back um, there was a guy in the in the 80s Fred Sampaichon who basically he was like the most infamous guy in Jiu Jitsu up until probably 2010. I mean, the dude was like infamous for breaking people's wrists because he solved the age-old problem of wrist locks, which Donner has recently said in one of his interviews that he doesn't dislike wrist locks. He just doesn't know, he doesn't know, he, he says there's nothing wrong with wrist locks as long as you can control the person. If you can control them, you can apply a wrist lock. He just doesn't know of a lot of great ways to control somebody to do a wrist lock. Is that, do you agree with that? I think that's, it comes down to just experimentation, right? Where where if you, for me, it might be easy for me to say, of course, there's a lot of control in wrist locks. I wrist lock people all the time. But uh, to you, you may not know as many things about wrist lock because you just didn't focus on them. It's not, not your area that you wanted to develop. Mm. Therefore, it's foreign to you. And it's not that if, if Donahue, Put some thought into it he couldn't figure it out i'm sure he could it's just one of the it's just the area of focus like i will never be as good as an olympic level judo competitor you know what i mean like the, that's not my area mm-hmm. um but but fred song passion will figure out a solution to that he said fuck control just break that shit and he literally was just breaking people's wrists like people couldn't like they wouldn't want to compete with him like it got to a point where he would sign up and people would drop out because he would just break him. Like there was no like, oh, you got to tap. <laughs> He's not. He, he. There's that not that moment where you go, all right, that hurts, right? No, you and go you right say, yeah, that. yeah, and they go tap, and you out tap. Well, he took the strategy. You know, like. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate here. <laughs> not because he's a fellow wrist locker, but I'm just gonna play devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. So in jujitsu, how many ways in a competition? How can I beat you? By submitting me. That's one way. What else? Mm-hmm. By B 
beating me by points. What else? By scaring the shit out of me so I back out of the competition. No. <laughs> referee's decision. Yeah. Right? If it's a tie, it's referee's decision. Advantages, if advantages are okay, counted, yeah. right? Um, and then if all things are tied, maybe the patch on my back, maybe that matters a little bit if I come from a big team or not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there is another one that nobody thinks about. If my opponent cannot continue fighting, I win. The problem with that clause is there's a subclause to that that says any unsportsmanlike behavior will get you disqualified. Mm-hmm. But what is unsportsmanlike behavior? <laughs> right? I mean, uh, really, that's what yeah. it comes down to. Like, if I get we have to define that if we're going to make that the Ab- absolutely yeah the, right? the trait that now in an armbar it's easy for me to say I control them completely and then I just broke his arm and gave him no mercy or he tapped and I broke through it. Now, if I do an armbar and it just happens to be so fast and your shit breaks, I won't I won't get DQ'd for it. And there's plenty of footage in just competitions. If you look, just look everywhere where guys will do like a jumping armbar or, you know, like they'll drop into like a super tight heel hook and it the shit breaks before the guy has an opportunity to tap. Mm-hmm. Fred Sampachon took that approach. He says, fuck it. If I just break their shit really, really quick and really, really suddenly... They can't continue. And I went. And that's basically, that was his approach to fighting. So he was hated. Um, but anyways, I think you'll see wrist locks coming back. That, that's what your tattoo is, right? I, I don't have a tattoo. <laughs> um, so I think you'll see wrist locks coming back. Maybe not right now, but maybe in 10 or 15 years, you'll see a big advent of them. Because we're becoming so good at controlling people on the, on the ground. I think our ability to pin people has is getting better and better every day and that would solve the old age problem of how do I control somebody long enough to get a wrist lock mm-hmm. um, I think you're going to see a, a much higher focus into judo and into wrestling in the next 10-15 years in order to deal with people that are leg lockers maybe you take them down and you pass their guard you, you can't just pull guard with them because they'll attack your legs. Um, you will see a bigger split between gi and no gi. I think in, in no gi, you're going to see a saturation of people that are, you know, guillotine and leg lock and double leg or wrestling experts. And in the gi, you're going to see a expansion into judo and lapel style guards and open guards um in in gi jiu-jitsu um and and i think the the next big thing that's going to come back and people are going to say it's incredible um it's really just the idea of neon belly so neon belly was huge in the late 90s because it was the first time that neon belly was weaponized and we don't see as much of that anymore in competition because people won't do that anymore. Now, why don't people neon belly? Because competitions are getting so, for lack of a better word, competitive that when they, anytime a competitor, hell of a competitor scores a little bit, a couple points, they won't move from that spot. They'll stay there until the opponent does something that is detrimental to their game. 
in nogi, there's no incentive to go to neon belly. You don't score. Most nogi competitions are no points, so you don't score. So why would you go to neon belly if you can't score? And then in gi, you might be too afraid to move and give up your control. But I think we're we're seeing a shift in the rules where stalling is becoming more prevalent, where they are trying to make jiu-jitsu more entertaining for people to watch and i think that will push people into going to positions that we don't go anymore because either they don't score or they have weaknesses like north and south neon belly i think we're going to see more into like leg dragging which we don't see as much anymore um we're going to see more of that as as the times go on as we kind of get then here towards the end we we've we've talked about the future and how jiu-jitsu has come very far. Now, if we look back at the roots of jiu-jitsu and um, self-defense, is is that is that stuff all still in line with the self-defense part of jiu-jitsu, or is that is it now becoming is is that a lot of that just more specialized in just a jiu-jitsu world uh, context that it's not as applicable to? Oh, self-defense. I, I know that's a that's a really good question. Mm-hmm. I think that's the question everybody asks, right? Because it, it's great on the mat, and then you just wonder, like, but if if we pulled Elio from like nineteen thirty and said, like, look at this stuff, would he be right. like, wow, that's cool? Or he'd be like, but how's that going to help in real yeah, life? There, there, there's the big uh, that's a that's a huge argument in the jiu-jitsu community, right? The idea of. Um, Sport jiu-jitsu or self-defense jiu-jitsu, which one is better for self-defense? Mm-hmm. Like in a street fight, which one would be best, right? And I think that at the end of the day, it's all jiu-jitsu. What it comes down is appropriate, appropriate appropriateness of technique, you know, and, and whether it's applicable um, and relevant, right? So the reality is, I mean, you're blue belt going on purple you've done your basic white belt self-defense. That should be enough for most people that you're gonna meet mm-hmm. and fight. Like, that should be plenty. But you also haven't done any self-defense in years because you're a blue belt now. You're focused on the ground game. That's where the fun is, right? So let's say you completely forgot your self-defense. The question is, is could you, with your you know, very heavy-focused competitive jiu-jitsu, could you protect yourself well? Yes. Could you protect yourself well with just self-defense? If you had just learned self-defense and just kept repeating that cycle over and over? Yes. Could you do better if you had more of one or more of the other? Not true. So I think that there are some very important things that we do in competitive jujitsu that are very, very relevant to self-defense. and there are some things that we do in self-defense that we should do more, a little bit more of in, in grappling as well. Um, and there are some things in jujitsu in, in, in grappling that we shouldn't do in self-defense and vice versa. So example, um, the idea of leg locking, right? So in competitive jujitsu, leg locking is a staple. Like you have to be good at it now. Um, it's the trend, right? Um, but in a self-defense situation, if you got somebody's leg, could you break that leg and win? Yes, absolutely. Is that the best approach in that self-defense situation? Probably not. Not that the technique doesn't work or wouldn't work, 
but what is the inherent downside to leg locking? If there is a failure, you're in the bottom. Mm-hmm. In a self-defense situation, that's not desirable right now. What if what if you were already on the bottom? The guy bulldozed you over and you're already on the bottom. Then there's no harm, no foul. But you would never, in a self-defense situation, drop to somebody's legs if you're on top. It, like, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know? um, something that's not often talked about in self-defense that we do a really good job in in grappling is the idea of controlling people, right? In self-defense, it's usually deal with the situation. This is the defense. This is the escape. Get out. Do whatever. But we don't really talk about the idea of holding somebody down. Sometimes it's safer to hold somebody down than to try to get away. That's not often discussed, but it's something that we do a lot in competitive grappling is how to hold somebody down in order to apply submissions and, and control the fight. Well, yesterday you, we were talking at the gym and you brought up a point that, was, that I thought was was one that's easy to forget about, and that's when being in like a self-defense situation, a lot of times just the best thing to do would just be to wear someone out to the point where if they're so tired they just they give up. Correct. You're not you're not necessarily hitting them into submission or submitting them. You just make them so tired, whatever reason that they were they were starting an issue, they they don't even care about that anymore because they're yeah. just dead. Right. They just don't want it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think uh, I think my cousins call that the hundred second rule. They said if you can hold somebody down for hundred seconds, they don't want any part of that anymore. <laughs> okay, um, which is which is true. I mean, how many of you guys have you seen come in the gym buck wild and you hold them down for forty five seconds and they're they're done? Right. You know. So. Hmm. Well, that was that was a good solid forty minutes there, and that was it was a. I'm impressed you're able to like categorize everything just off the cuff from the birth of jiu-jitsu to the future. Oh, I can go further. There's other bigger trends at play and there's smaller trends at play too, but but we'll we'll save that for for another time. Uh well, that's it for this episode and if you have any questions, email us at jujitsu podcast at just jujitsu podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> Solid way to end the episode. Thank you. And <laughs> call us uh, at your number is 574 32. No, okay, we won't give Crowther's number. <laughs> I should, though. Wouldn't that be a funny joke if I, if I just kill you. gave that out? I, I would drown you in six inches of water. <laughs> so you just feel like you're close enough to breathe. That's why six inches of water, people, is that you feel like you're almost out. Well, to be fair, six inches of water would be up to my chest. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) All right, everyone. We will see you next week.